Welcome to the Outward OPC podcast. This episode is a little bit different from normal. We did an interview with Eric Watkins on video a couple of years ago. There was a lot of response and we had some requests to turn it into a podcast. So we did that and this is part of that interview. You may notice a note of odd music or two as we splice the interview together. If you haven't watched the video on the website or it's been a while, give it a listen for many helpful topics as we jump right in. Maybe in my experience, maybe just thinking about some practical matters and how you think about them. So with people who aren't accustomed to coming to church anymore, and my experience, a lot of questions are, you know, what do I do with my kids? And what if they're a little unruly? And, you know, we, we kind of have a culture for how we think about families worshiping. And even people coming in, they don't sing. And, and so we, we sing regularly. Do you think about the practical things and how do you help, out, whether it's you in leading worship or just... The, the culture of the church, how do you help people just with those practical matters of, yes, we want families worshiping together, but we realize you're coming from the world and, and you know, these things are foreign. Yeah. How, how, do we, how do you, how do we help people escort them, tour guide them into that kind of new world they're entering? Yeah, I think that last phrase is really important. This is a new world. Becoming a Christian is like moving to a foreign country. The language is new, the customs are new, the food is new, right? The regular diets and rhythms of life are, are different. And I think the Bible even postures us that way. Think of the book of Hebrews. You know, when we gather together for worship, we're not just with us. We're gathering together with those that have already gone ahead of us in glory. There's truly something otherworldly about Christian worship. I think what's regrettable <clears throat> is the trend in the last few decades, especially to try to make Christian worship and church life as unotherworldly as possible. In other words, make it virtually indistinguishable from a rock concert. We visited a church not long ago on vacation, and we're told by leaders when we got there that found out we were a pastor's family on vacation, uh, we were told, and I quote, uh, just think of this as a rock concert, sit back and enjoy the show. Well, my 11-year-old kind of cringed, budding theologian in the family. I think there's a genuine sense in which uh, that's the opposite of the way that we ought to think about worship. A rock concert, you are there to be entertained, and the concert exists for you. In worship, you are there to serve, and the service primarily exists to bring honor and glory to God. Uh, even the distinction of vocabulary, to me, has become important. Are we going to a worship service or an experience? Well, an experience is all about me. <clears throat> a service is all about me going to serve God and uh, his people. Now, I think your question, though, is difficult because people come from different vantage points. Some come and visit covenants that are kind of pre-groomed and are looking for higher ground, so to speak. Others come and they're not quite as well groomed. And I've actually tried to take the time, if I have the opportunity in advance, to sort of give people a, a, a primer on what to expect. Like, this is going to be hard. Don't just give this a Sunday. You know, this is like going to a gym for the first time. You know, a lot of people go home sore the first day. And it's tough getting up the next morning, right? So if you're going to commit to something for your physical health, you probably have to give it a little while to see good fruit. If you're going to commit to a new program spiritually, it's going to be the same. Uh, we do things that I would say are there that we I hope and think are biblical concessions that we can make. So we have a nursery. In fact, we, had, we have two nurseries because we just completely overflowed the first one and you couldn't walk through the back of the church without almost stepping on a baby. <clears throat> so now we have a second uh, staff nursery. 
but we encourage people, it's even in our bulletin, it's in our family visits, it's in my dialogue, that the goal is to get our kids into church, not to see churches that hour and a half where we get to just drink our coffee cup and get a break from our kids. So we really resist that mentality uh, and try to cultivate not only a sense of we want to worship with our kids, but you know it begins with family worship at home, which you're not doing at home, you'll never pull off in church. And <clears throat> But you know how many men today have ever read scripture and prayed with and for their wives and kids in the church, right? So to come here and have kids in worship, that's, that's a big jump for a lot of people. And it takes time, training, and discipleship for many people uh, to get it. So if folks are coming, they've been raised Reformed, they've you know, got Dutch Reformed backgrounds or whatever, you know, they might make a lot of this stuff look easy. Covenant is sort of the opposite of a church that has inherited a lot of Reformed folks. Most of the people here are either first-time Reformed, uh, many new, newly converted people, or, or folks that are brand new to the OPC. So we've seen, I'm not quite sure why, uh, but we've seen very little transfer growth. We've seen a lot of new people, new convert growth, and it just takes them a while to learn that vocabulary. Uh, we're helpful, I mean, we're thankful <clears throat> and hopefully patient with them because we're excited they're here, but we do have a goal. It's not just to perpetuate the status quo and just keep it easy so they never have to come around the corner, but we try to accommodate them at some level as they're making their way in, but we try to educate uh, as soon as we can. So what does that patience and working with them look like on the ground? I'm thinking of other church planners, you know, trying to think through this and hear that. What does it look like? Does it look like, uh, you know, what, how do you shepherd them with the nursery stuff and the singing stuff? And um, what, is, what does that patience look like? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, patience involves <clears throat> the fact that we have a nursery and I'm always begging for nursery workers because they just get burned out quickly. I mean, and it's almost, in my mind, it's almost a fait complete. Like they're going to run for a while and then they're going to need a break or they're going to stop doing it. And it's hard, you know, to come staff a nursery. People don't want to get sick. You know, they came to church not to crawl around the floor of the little one and 10 of them, right? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I think just having a nursery is a, is a measure of servanthood and, uh, you know, accommodation I hope doesn't violate biblical lines. Um, I'm sure I know there are some that would disagree with that. Um, but anyway, uh, I think even just... You know, learning to be patient with the noise of small kids in worship is a sacrifice that some of our older members have to make who are empty nesters and don't have little ones at home and, you know, kind of forgotten what that wrestling match looks like. And so I'm, I'm constantly living between the, hey, I'm new here. Is it okay? I'm trying to do this with my kids to I wish it were quiet in here. And you know, we see the church as a big covenant family. And not everybody gets their way. Nobody gets their way. At the end of the day, we do what we can to serve one another and try to honor King Jesus I think education, though, is just a big part of it to not just, you know, people just visit and that's it, but to actually try to sit down and talk about it. Like we sing two psalms and two hymns in every service. A lot of people have never sung the psalms before. Uh, so we will play it through. We do a song of the month where we introduce a new song. It's usually a psalm. And, you know, I'll have uh, the pianist play through it. And then we will all come and uh, sing it together. And I explain why we do that. I explain why we use uh, the creeds. Our, our church typically cycles through the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, I love the theology of the Westminster Standards, but the Heidelberg was written for church use. It's just rhetorically more advantageous. But I'll explain almost every week why it is that we use this creed or 
Um, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we do twice a month, I'm trying to get weekly, but that's a secret that I guess I'm not keeping anymore. So, you know, we'll talk, we'll use the Apostles' Creed, and I'll talk about this as an early Christian creed, and there's a reason why we recite these. But I think the thing is, there's a genuine sense of we're excited about what we're doing. I'm not apologizing for it. I am defending and explaining it, but I'm not backpedaling. I'm not on my heels you know, regretting that we're worshiping this way. I think this is biblically what pleases God and that these things are defensible and that when they're explained, people have aha moments and they desire more for their wives, for their kids, for themselves, and that those things take time, but people can grow into it. We do community group, uh, like home Bible studies and prayer time. That's a fantastic venue for explaining answering questions, digesting, um, you know, those, the, those sorts of things. I will say that you know, when we encourage people to invite friends to church, uh, generally I'll tell people, try to explain to them a little bit about what they're going to see so that they're not so shell-shocked when they get here and see a paradigm of worship that has become harder and harder to find. Uh, so there are probably more things, but those are at least some things that illustrate the idea of just trying to make it, on the one hand, a safe, easy place for people to land without watering down or whittling off uh, the things that are distinctively ours. I have found myself, uh, through travel and some of the work uh, around a lot of OPC guys, uh, Reformed church pastors, church planters, um, I hear a continual question when we think about being more outward and evangelistic and, and um, doing outreach, and you've touched on it before. I'm so busy. I've got two sermons to repair. I've got a Sunday school to prepare. I've got shepherding to do. You know, some of our distinctives are very uh, time-consuming, energy-consuming, emotion-consuming uh, consuming for pastors. And they see outreach as a huge desire, I mean, a, a passion to do it, and they can't figure out how it fits in. Any thoughts, any encouragement, does that ring true, or what, what kind of encouragement could you give guys who maybe are a year or two in, you've been at it a little bit longer, you, like you said, you've worked through the things that you've struggled with. Any encouragement for them or any thoughts for them uh, in, that, in that aspect? Yeah, it's a hard question. <clears throat> I think things relate to it. One is just the personality strength and gifting of a guy. So a church planner will have varying levels of skill or competency in varying areas, right? You might be better at preaching or shepherding, not as good at evangelism, or it could be the other way around. And I think there's a sense in which we are wise if we really think about our church planners, where they're strong, where they're weak, and try to come alongside them where they're weak, and really keep them where they're strong, keep them in their sweet spot as much as we can, and compliment them. I mean, even currently, I have right now just you know fantastic elders and deacons, and we really have, in my view, a finely oiled machine. They know where I'm strong, and they know where I'm weak. They don't try to pressure me to become something that I'm not. I'm not David trying to run in Saul's armor. They compensate for my areas of weakness and kind of surround me there, and yet keep me on the front where they feel like I'm the most effective and keep me playing to my strength generally speaking, as much as possible. When we started Covenant, because there was no church and things were, you know, just moving to an area and starting, what do you do all week? One of the things that we started from the very beginning was a job description, and I literally kept a record of my hours uh, all through the, my work days. It broke down by hour where I was and what I was doing. It created 
administrative responsibility, financial responsibility. It gave my elders an opportunity to take a look and say, okay, this is where I'm spending my time. This is where I'm not spending my time. That job description was kind of incarnate on page, and in time, <clears throat> it would change as there were people to shepherd when we began worship services. Obviously, what that week would look like changed, but we actually kept that going for quite a while. And even now, when we get together at session meetings, a, a frequent topic will be just the way that I'm getting to use my time. Now it involves traveling a good bit, and you know, only so much of that is okay for the health of the church. And you know, I love evangelism. So we have an associate pastor who is phenomenal, uh, and my elders are phenomenal, and they keep me doing the things they feel like I'm the best at. And I've got others that are helping me do things that I'm not as good at. But even as a church planner, you can somehow create a sensitive balance regarding that. I will say one thing that I, I think will be a bit controversial, perhaps for OP ears, but I do think that given the, the narrative of OPC church planning, particularly since the 80s, and maybe I just don't know enough, enough of the history to speak more broadly, I do think there's a temptation for us to treat church plants <clears throat> like they're grown-up churches too soon. And that this can unintentionally, and with very good intentions, suffocate a church planner from doing other things that he may need to do. It's kind of like asking a kid, a child, to have a job. That's, that's actually really funny. Please don't edit that out. In the sense that there are stages of growth and development and maturation, not only for the church planner himself, but for the work itself. And I think a church plant, like a child, needs time to develop and grow into itself, like an acorn needs time to grow into a tree. And not only can you not do everything, you can't do everything well. But I think just given the narrative of having received so many people from different denominations and the expectations of being a visibly, we're super reformed church from the beginning, just some of our principal commitments have unintentionally, I think, hindered evangelism because at the end of the day, if you put all of that on a church planner's shoulders from the very beginning, <clears throat> he's going to have to try to do those things well. But he's only getting so many hours out of a day, right? He can only make so many bricks with a certain measure of straw. And I think this is a difficult question, and I'm not pretending to have a great resolve to it, but at the end of the day, it could be a mistake to treat a church plant like a full-grown mother church when the two things are not the same. And if you put all of the expectations of a mother church on the shoulders of a church plant and church planner, it might unintentionally stymie the natural, organic, timely growth that needs to take place in order for the church plant and the church planner to mature into what an established mother church, you know, rooted church, needs to look like. And so I have a little concern to kind of visualize with things kind of doing like that, where you quickly grow into a stage, <clears throat> but then realize, oh, you know what, there's some things, you know, Paul's language of setting in order what remains. I think there's a lot of things that we need to set in order. And frankly, if you look around at our churches, is evangelism and outreach something we're strong at? Well, no. And is it a high expectation when we get started? I think sometimes not, but being altogether reformed and that being visible is. But if you don't have both of those, I think there's potential for this to happen. And in our presbytery and I think around the country, I mean, we need to admit, and this is hard truth, but we need to admit that we have closed churches and church plants. It's not because they weren't reformed. 
It's not because all of a sudden the guy takes a, you know, an exception to the Westminster standards or something. It could be maybe in, at least in some cases uh, we tried to do too much too fast and hadn't really set in place a healthy first things that we could build onto once those things were established and rooted. And I think evangelism, since we call evangelists and not pastors to church plant, I think that strength of evangelism has to really be there and be strong before the concentric circles are, are wrapped. So let me get you in a little more trouble. Not that you need to say what the answers are, but what are the questions that we need to be asking about making a, 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 baby, a church plant too full of a church right away? I mean, I can kind of think where you're going. That's why I said, let me get you in more trouble. But not that, not that you have to make, answer, not that you answer for the different churches, but what questions, what things should they be asking about that would help find that balance for a young church before it grows into a full church? Yeah, so two-sided coin, <clears throat> you know, two sides are distinct, but they're inseparable. So I would say things that we need to ask are, what are we going to do for evangelism and outreach? And if your answer is, I'm going to preach on Sunday, that's not enough in my opinion. If you're just going to preach from behind the pulpit on Sunday and call that your evangelism and outreach mission, biblically speaking, I think historically speaking, even in the history of the OPC speaking, uh, that's a very small circle. And you know, gone are the days where you can just hang out a shingle that says, hey, we're a faithful church and people are just going to come flocking in you know, because of that. Al Mohler had a good quote a few years ago at Evangelical Homiletic Society that gone are the days where people are, are looking even for faithful preaching. The question has become, how can you bring faithful preaching to a people that, aren't, that don't care? Right? So somehow we have to be able to say positively, this is what we're going to do. I think sometimes we content ourselves with the opposite. With, In other words, we simply agree with what we're not going to do. We're not going to do this program or that program, or we're not going to be the big evangelical thing you know, down the street. So we live rather in a self-conscious reaction than a proactive resolve of this is what we're going to do. So I would like to hear a church planner say, I'd like to hear a group say, <clears throat> this is what we're going to do. And for the leadership to say, this is how we're going to protect the church planner's schedule and review monthly what he's actually doing. And I think we have some of that in place. I think we could do a little bit better. I think in terms of adding, you know, and I'll just say it, you know, ministry programs in the church, second services, whatever you're going to do, at the end of the day, you at least need to be persuaded that you've set in place, you've set in order what you believe are first things. If you believe all those things are first things and they trump evangelism, well, I mean, that's between you and the text, but you need to be persuaded <clears throat> that those are things that are going to really cause this church to thrive and not simply check preferential boxes that might actually hinder the church from thriving. And so there are questions that we need to ask about the timeliness of beginning certain things, not just the ones that I mentioned, but anything. Is this the right time to begin this? Do we have the infrastructure the leadership in place uh, to begin this? Are we missing something? Do we have young families that come and visit and never come back a second time because they have no clue what to do with their kids and they feel incredibly awkward for being the only family in back making noise or the only family in back? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, 
have we thought through issues like this? Uh, does the pastor have evangelism built into his week, like family devotions and coming to church on Sunday? You know, maybe someone would say, you're, you're asking too much. I'm definitely asking more. But I think that these are things that are biblical and required of one who is called as an evangelist. And for the group and the overseeing uh, session, they need to be committed to the work of evangelism in a positive way. This is what we're going to do. These are the paradigms that we're okay with. This is how we view the, the, the lay people in the group somehow contributing to the growth of the church. That might not be driven by evangelistic guilt, but at least some sense of positively, this is how we're going to talk about it. This is how we're going to equip it, and this is what it's going to look like, and then we're going to review it. And when we reach a certain measure of confidence, then we'll add another circle of other things. That's it for today's episode. You can go to the website at outwardopc.com to check out more resources. And you can sign up for our email list where you will receive notifications when new things are available. Until then, we'll see you next episode.